We return this morning to our studies in Matthew's Gospel, where we have been feeding recently from Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, and we pick up today with the first 12 verses of chapter 7. So the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Jesus says, Do not judge, so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck Out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Father, we pray that you would speak to us now. Help us hear the words of your Son, to hear them for what they are, the very words of God, and to believe and to apply what he speaks to us. And we ask in his name, amen. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Ask, and it will be given to you. Treat people the same way you want them to treat you. These are some of the most well-known, are they not, of all the sayings of our Lord. In fact, I dare say that even in this day in which familiarity with the Bible appears to be on the wane among the American populace, I dare say that if you went to the office tomorrow and asked your unbelieving co-workers to listen to the first words of each of those three sayings and then to try to complete the rest of the saying, I would imagine that at least some of them would, with some degree of accuracy, be able to do so. If you went into the office tomorrow and said to people, complete the following sayings of Jesus. Do not judge, and then let them fill in the blank. Ask and it, and then let them fill in the blank. Treat people, or in some other translations, do to others, and then let them fill in the blank. I think you would find that even some of your non-church-going peers would be able, more or less, to complete those Sayings. I think you would find that even some of your non-Christian co-workers basically would know what Jesus said in those three sayings. These are famous teachings here at the beginning of Matthew 7, and they are famous 
because they are so pithily, so memorably, so beautifully stated. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Ask and it will be given to you. Treat people the same way you want them to treat you. And of course, not only are these words famous and well-spoken, but they are true. And they are the very words of God. And therefore, it would behoove us, wouldn't it, to be sure that we are familiar with them. To be sure that we could fill in the blanks if someone were to prompt us with the initial words of these sayings. And since Jesus speaks the very truth of God, then it would behoove us also, of course, to think carefully about how we are to put these famous words into practice. And then, of course, we will do well also to think carefully about the rest of the teaching that comes with them here in verses 1 through 12, which, while it is not as well known, is just as inspired and just as important and which will help us even better understand the more famous one-liners here in this chapter. And so to these ends, we're going to work our way now through this famous passage here in Matthew 7, 1 through 12. And we're going to notice that Jesus has three topics on his mind. Judging in verses 1 through 6. Asking in verses 7 through 11. And then what has become known as the golden rule in verse 12. So those are our headings today. Judging, asking, and the golden rule. And we'll begin in verses 1 through 6 with judging. Judging. Now, I'm sure that a good number of you have probably heard people strategically employ Matthew 7, verse 1. Indeed, you yourself at some point may have employed Jesus' words here as though he were actually prohibiting us in verse 1 from calling anyone else's behavior sin. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever done that? Jesus' words here are sometimes used as though what he were saying was that we are prohibited from making any moral evaluation of someone else's behavior, and thus from pointing out that such and such a behavior is wrong. Don't tell me that shacking up is immoral. Don't be on me about how I should be in church. Don't quote Bible verses to me about my lifestyle because didn't Jesus say, do not judge? And of course, if you are shacking up or if you aren't in church as you should be or you're involved in some other unrepentant sin, it may seem awfully convenient to quote Matthew 7.1 and then to go on your way continuing in the same direction as before. But is this the right understanding of Jesus' words here? When Jesus says, do not judge, is he really prohibiting our making moral evaluations of one another's behaviors and thus from speaking to the wrongness of those behaviors when they are wrong? Is this what Jesus means when he commands us not to judge here? Is he using the word judge to refer to the making of mere moral judgments, to refer to making moral evaluations of certain behaviors? Well, I suspect that even many people who employ Jesus' words in that way know deep down that this is not what he's really saying. And surely the rest of Scripture would resoundingly show 
that this cannot be what he means. And we can even see from this very passage itself that this is not what Jesus means here. That Jesus is not prohibiting us making moral evaluations. He's not prohibiting us pointing out sins here in Matthew 7.1. That he's not using the word judge in verse 1 to connote the meaning of merely making a moral judgment about something. Making a mere determination or evaluation that someone's behavior is sinful. Now, the word judge can be used in that way. But the word as it's used in verse 1 cannot mean that. Else, Jesus wouldn't talk about helping someone out with their speck in verse 5. Because did you notice that Jesus goes on to show in verse 5 that there is a place for taking the speck out of your brother's eye, that there is a place for pointing out your brother's sin in order to help him overcome it. And so... It's patently clear from verse 5 that what Jesus means in verse 1 is not that we're prohibited from labeling certain behaviors as sin. It's not that we're prohibited from addressing the sinner about those behaviors because to point out the speck in your brother's eye and to try to help him wash it out after you've taken the log out of your own eye, but to point that speck out and to help him wash it out is to make a moral evaluation about the speck, right? It is to say this thing in your eye is not good. This behavior represented by the speck is wrong, and that is a moral evaluation, isn't it? That is a moral determination. And Jesus wouldn't commend us helping a brother with the speck in his eye. He wouldn't commend us making a moral evaluation about something that's going on in someone's life if what he intended in verse 1 was that we should never make such evaluations. And so we must conclude that Jesus in verse 1 is not prohibiting our evaluating people's actions and the determination that some of them are sinful, nor is he prohibiting our pointing out to people that certain behaviors are sinful. He's not using the word judge in verse 1 to the mere making of moral judgments or to refer to sharing those moral judgments with a person who is sinning. But then how is he using the word judge? In verse 1, because he is using it and he is telling us not to judge in some particular way. So, how is he using this word here? Well, it seems to me that the other possibility for the meaning of the word judge in verse 1 is that Jesus is using it to connote not the making of mere moral judgments and evaluations, but that he's using it to connote judgmentalism, to connote condemnation, looking down upon other people when we see their sins. That's another way that the word judge can be used, right? And I think that that must be what Jesus is prohibiting here. Because while you cannot help a brother wash the speck out of his eye, verse 5, without making some sort of moral evaluation, yet you can help him wash the speck out of his eye without weighing him down with condemnation. You can help someone out with their sin without belittling them or berating them or embarrassing them or looking down on them or writing them off out of hand. You can point out that someone is sinning. You can make a moral judgment, as we see in verse 5, in a way that is not judgmental, which is what Jesus is prohibiting in verse 1. So we shouldn't interpret the word judge here as though it prohibits moral evaluation, as though it prohibits pointing out someone's sin and calling it what it is, but rather we should see it 
and understand it as a prohibit a prohibition on being judgmental, condemning. Being judgmental towards someone, of course, condemning them, looking down on them, is one way in which we can make a moral evaluation. But in verse 5, there is another way. There is a right way to point out someone's sin, and that is to try to help them out with it, to try to take the speck out of their eye instead of just condemning them for it. So yes, we are to avoid being judgmental, unkind, condemning, looking down our noses at people when we see their sins. But that is not the same thing as avoiding making or speaking any moral judgment as to the rightness or wrongness of certain behaviors. There is a way, verse 5, to evaluate behaviors and call them sinful without being condemning. And that way is to try to help, to try to point out the speck in the eye not so that we can judge, be judgmental, but so that we can help wash it out. So be careful about misrepresenting, misinterpreting, misusing verse 1. Jesus is not prohibiting evaluation. He's prohibiting condemnation. He's not prohibiting pointing out of sin. He's prohibiting putting down of sinners. But in saying that, in pointing out what Jesus is not saying... We do need to make sure that we give careful heed to what he is saying. We need to make sure that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We need to make sure, in other words, that in seeing that Jesus is not prohibiting moral evaluation and accountability, that we don't then skim over the fact that he is prohibiting something, namely being judgmental. He is prohibiting being condemning in verse 1. He is prohibiting pointing out the specks in others' eyes, not so that we can help them wash them out, but for the purpose of putting them down or writing them off out of hand or making ourselves feel better about ourselves because, well, I'm not like other people. If that's how you treat other people in verses 1 and 2, then the same measuring tape will be applied to you. And believe you me, When the measuring tape is laid against you, you will be found wanting as well. And so will I. Because we have some specks in our own eyes, don't we? Indeed, we have some logs in our eyes sometimes, verse 3. And you see, that's part of the deal here too, isn't it? Where do we get off looking down our noses at other people, condemning other people for their sins when we're sinners ourselves? When we have some logs in our own eyes, we have sometimes some sins in our own lives that may be greater than those of the people that we're condemning. In the same way that a log is larger than a speck. Why, verse 3, do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Now, even once we've noticed the logs in our own eyes and taken them out of our own eyes, verse 5, we're still not to judge verse 1, but rather we are to help people, verse 5, take their specks out. But our judgmentalism is compounded with hypocrisy, verse 3, if we're condemning others, all the while paying very little attention to our own sins. And so we mustn't be judgmental in verse 1, and we mustn't be hypocritical in verse 3 either. We mustn't point out the specks in other people's eyes in order to condemn them, verse 1, but to help them wash them out, verse 5. And we mustn't look down our noses at others, verse 3, while failing to notice our own sins. And we mustn't look down our noses at all, even when we've noticed our own sins. 
And notice this, too, about the logs in our own eyes. Not only does it add hypocrisy to our judgmentalism if we judge others while we still have logs in our own eyes, but even if we're trying to help others to wash the specks out of their eyes, if we are not going to be hypocritical about that, we need to get the logs out of our own eyes first, right? Verses 4 and 5. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So you're out in the yard with your friend cutting up a felled tree. And suddenly you're both grabbing at your eyes because he has gotten a a speck of sawdust to fly up and and go into his eye, and you've had a pea-sized wood chip break off and lodge beneath your eyelid. So you're both grabbing at your face, and what are you going to do? Well, you're going to take, I hope, you're going to take the wood chip out of your eye first, and then you'll be able to see clearly to help your buddy with the speck of sawdust that is in his eye. Don't be the person, in other words, who's quick to try to help everyone else with their sins, but who never lifts a finger to try and deal with your own sins. So think all this out now in terms of your own personal life and your own personal application of these things. Do you tend to be judgmental toward other people when you see their sins? Or do you seek, verse 5, to be helpful to them? And if it's the former, if you tend to be a judgmental, condemning, looking down your nose upon people kind of person, how would you like it, verse 2, if other people or if God were to size you up and put you down in the same way that you do toward others? And if you don't like it, then know that In the same way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And then ask yourself, are there particular persons in my life toward whom, or perhaps particular sins toward which I tend to be more judgmental? And how does this passage speak to me in those areas? Ask yourself also how well you're doing at noticing the wood chips that are lodged under your own eyelids. Do you notice your sins, verse 3, as readily as you notice those of others? And are you dealing with your sins, verses 4 and 5, so that you might see clearly enough to kindly help someone deal with theirs? And are you dealing with your sins most of all because they're sins that need to be repented of? And then ask yourself also, in terms of personal application, might it be that I'm suffering from the misapprehension of verse 1 that we thought about at the beginning of this point? Is it possible that someone in this room has been refusing the genuine help that others have tried to offer you with the speck that is in your eye by writing off their attempts to help you as judging you? Or is it possible that you've shied away from giving help to those who need it for fear of being accused of judging them? These verses are familiar to many of us. Verse 1, perhaps most of all, but probably to some extent the other verses 2 through 5 here as well. But let's not only be familiar with them, 
But let's think about what we must do with them and how they apply and how we must put into practice the decrees of our king. And then let's not only think about how to put them into practice, let's do so. And then before we leave this point about judging, let's pause briefly on these interesting words in verse 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now what is Jesus saying here? Well, let me just give you the explanation of John Broadus, the great 19th century southern preacher and commentator on the book of Matthew. Broadus says that what Jesus is doing here is, quote, is giving, quote, a caution against the opposite extreme to what he has just been rebuking. We must not judge others, he says, but we must not heedlessly expose sacred things to persons wholly wanting in appreciation and sure to reject them. He's giving, Broadus says, a caution against the opposite extreme to what he's just been rebuking in verses 1 through 5. We must not judge others, verses 1 through 5, but here in verse 6, we must not heedlessly expose sacred things to persons wholly wanting in appreciation and sure to reject them. And he lists some examples of how, that, of how we might fall foul here. Trying to convert someone who is drunk or someone who's just been yelling and cursing, he says, might be an example or would be an example of giving your pearls or throwing your pearls before swine. And then he also gives the example of sharing intimate, personal Christian experiences with people who will not be able to appreciate them. And then Broadus also points out how this caution that Jesus gives in verse 6 may be especially connected, should be especially connected, to what Jesus has just been talking about in verses 1 through 5, namely the removal of a speck from someone's eye. Some people, in other words, verse 6, aren't going to receive very well the help that is spoken of in verse 5. And they might turn on you for it, verse 6. And so, says Broadus, we must exercise discretion. We must exercise discretion in this matter of moving, removing specks from others' eyes. And he cites Proverbs 9.8. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. But then Broadus makes this important balancing observation as well when he says, yet this precept, the precept in verse 6, this precept must not be pushed too far. Persons from whom a hasty judgment might least expect it sometimes welcome gospel truth, as did the publicans and sinners and the robber on the cross. Often, he says, our only means of deciding wisely is to make the trial, in other words, to try to speak the truth, to try to take the speck out of the eye, to try to share our story, and then to continue our labors or not, he says, according to the results and prospects. End of quote. So take that as a warning. There is caution in verse 6, but let us be aware that sometimes people whom we least expected may actually listen to the gospel and believe, and praise God that that is so. So that's the first thing today, judging, verses 1 through 6. And then the second thing is this, asking. Asking, in verses 7 
through 11. Now, we'll be much briefer here and simply point out three things. First, notice the admonitions to ask. Notice that we are told to ask. Verse 7, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. We are told to ask. Our Father really does want us to pray. He really does want us to let our requests be made known to Him, to cast all our anxiety on Him. He really does want us, as William Walford put it, to make all our wants and wishes known. This is one of the reasons He sent His only begotten Son to come and hang on that tree, right? So that He might bring us to God. So that the separation that our iniquities have made between us and our God might be closed up and that we might be adopted as God's children and bring our requests to our Father who is in heaven. That's why Jesus died, one of the reasons. And so notice, first of all, the admonitions to ask. Notice that we are told to ask, told to pray, told to come to the Father with our requests. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And then notice in verses 7 and 8, the promises to those who do ask. The promises to those who do ask. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Put simply, God doesn't just want us to ask, but He delights in answering those who ask. He delights in giving. He delights in allowing us to find. He delights in opening doors. Now, I know He doesn't always give to us as soon as we would like. He doesn't always allow us to find in the first five minutes of our seeking. He doesn't always open the door at the very first sound of our knocking. But it's not because he's hard of hearing or because these verses aren't true. Rather, it's because he's wiser than we are as to the timing of opening the door or uncovering the treasure or answering when we ask. And so pray. And do not lose heart. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. So there's the admonition to ask, and then there. Is, are, there are the promises to those who do ask. And then let's also notice in verses 9 through 11 the character of the one we ask. The character of the one to whom we bring our petitions. Verses 9 through 11, Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? This is the bedrock of this whole section on asking, isn't it? 
The reason we should ask and the reason we can know that we will be answered is based on the character of the one we're asking. Based on the character of our Father. That He is a Father. Even earthly fathers sold into bondage to sin though we are, even if we earthly fathers, we evil earthly fathers, know how to give good gifts to our children, surely God will give good gifts to His. If even we sinful earthly fathers aren't in the habit of tricking our children or stiffing our children, how much less God? None of you is going to send your kid to school with a lunchbox full of rocks, right? You do what you can to provide well for your children. And what of the Heavenly Father? Does He not love us even all the more? God is not sitting on the throne of heaven figuring out ways to frustrate your prayers or to get your hopes up and then to leave you hanging. He's a good God. He's a Father. He gives good gifts. And if you will ask, and if you will watch, and if you will wait, you will see that that is so. And sometimes even when you're not watching, and even when you're not waiting, you've asked, and God gives because you've asked, and you'll eventually see it, even though you forgot about what you prayed, even though you didn't wait, even though you weren't patient. God proves himself good just the same. So what are you praying about in these days? Or what ought you to be praying about, given the kind of heavenly father that these verses say we have? And do you believe that God will give you what is good? And indeed that he will give you what is best, even if it's not exactly what you thought you needed and what you asked for specifically. Consider the character of your father in these verses. And consider Paul's logic in Romans 8, that this God, having already given us his best gift, will surely not withhold anything else that we need. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So then, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask Him? So that's the second thing today. We've heard Jesus teaching now concerning judging and concerning asking. And now in the final place, we need to consider what is often called the golden rule. The golden rule in verse 12. In everything, therefore... Treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. There's more than one interpretation among those who comment on these verses as to what Jesus is referring back to with that word, therefore as to what in his prior teaching he might be building verse 12 upon when he uses the word therefore to introduce this command. But I'll just mention one possibility, 
And that is that perhaps he's simply referring back to what he's just said in verses 7 through 11 about the goodness of our Father in the way that he answers our prayers. One possibility for this word, therefore, is that Jesus is saying, because God is so good to you, verses 7 through 11, as to give what is good and answer to your prayers, therefore, verse 12, you do good to your fellow men. And how should we do that? By treating people the same way we want them to treat us. Jesus' note doesn't say treat people the same way they treat you, does he? He doesn't say that you only need to scratch someone else's back if they scratch yours. Nor does he say that if they stab you in the back, that gives you freedom to stab them in theirs. The ethic of the kingdom is not tit for tat. The ethic of the kingdom is not treat people the same way they treat you, but treat people the same way you want them to treat you. Scratch their back, refrain from stabbing them in their back, do them good in all manner of ways because that's what you would hope that they would do for you. And keep doing it even if they don't reciprocate. Because this commandment, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, is not in place here so as to teach you how, by treating people well, you can manipulate them into treating you how you want to be treated. That's not the point of this command. And so the command to treat people the same way you want them to treat you is not annulled if they don't respond in kind. This command is not annulled if they never actually treat you the way you want to be treated. And notice something else about this command in verse 12, namely that Jesus says that we must obey it in everything. In everything, verse 12, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. There are no off days with this commandment. There are no exceptions to this commandment. There are no nooks or crannies of life in which this commandment does not apply. It's not okay if you do this most of the time, but if there's that one person or if there's this one area of life when you feel justified in withholding kindness or in dishing out unkindness. No, no. In everything, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. Are you doing this, my friends? In everything? Do you have a habit of seeking payback or withholding kindness? Or is there some person or some particular area of your life in which this issue rears its ugly head? In everything, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. Remembering and being motivated how good God has been to you. In verses 7 through 11. And then on this golden rule, let's also notice briefly the word for in verse 12. And of course, let's notice what follows it. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Put simply, If you will do what Jesus says here in verse 12, you will find yourself obeying the law and the prophets by doing so. If you will truly do what Jesus says here, if you will truly treat people the same way you want them to treat you, you will find yourself honoring your parents. Commandment number five. 
You will find yourself honoring and respecting the value of human life, commandment number six. If you will treat people the same way you want them to treat you, you will find yourself being faithful to your spouse, commandment number seven. You will find yourself respecting other people's property, commandment number eight. If you will treat people the same way you want them to treat you, you will find yourself telling the truth, commandment number nine. You will find yourself refraining from coveting, commandment number ten. And you will find yourself loving, loving your neighbor in all the other ways that God commands in his word. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. That's helpful, isn't it? Because Jesus said back in chapter 5 that he hadn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. And he said that great in the kingdom of heaven will be the person who keeps and teaches them. And so we are expected to keep the law of God. And here he gives us just a little key as to how we can make sure that we do that. Namely, that in everything, we treat people the same way we want them to treat us. Jesus does not mean, says Sinclair Ferguson, Jesus does not mean that because we know this text, we can ignore all others. Rather, says Ferguson, he is suggesting that this council gives us, in a nutshell, the principle that is expounded and illustrated in a thousand and more ways in the rest of Scripture. End of quote. So then, it's a beautiful way of life, is it not, that's described in these 12 verses? Dealing faithfully with our own sins and then helping other people with theirs instead of condemning them, letting our requests be made known to God and being assured that He will answer, that He will not give us a stone in place of our daily bread, and living by the golden rule, treating people the same way we want them to treat us. It's a beautiful lifestyle that Jesus is calling us to here. And I remind you that in Christ it is attainable. In Christ, it is doable. He himself, Christ, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Did you hear it? In Christ, it's attainable. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, in other words, so that we might stop condemning others and start helping them. Verses 1 through 5. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might stop worrying, chapter 6, and start trusting God in prayer here in chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we would not live by the ethic of treating people the way they treat us, but of treating people the same way we want them to treat us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. In Christ, this lifestyle is attainable. So run to Christ today. Run to him as the one who, if you will trust in his shed blood, will forgive you for your judgmentalism, your unkindness, your prayerlessness, and for every other sin. 
and run to him as well, as the one who died for sin, so that all who belong to him might die to sin and live to righteousness. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Run to him. 